Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas, for several decades. This week, we have the first halves of two in-depth interviews by Andrew Edmondson, first with Barry Mandel, president and park director at Discovery Green, about his life of service in the Houston nonprofit LGBTQ community, then with transgender activist Diamond Stiles, about her efforts to end violence against trans people. We have an audio snapshot of Houston ballet soloist Harper Waters talking about his experience growing up in ballet and finding a place where he fits in. We have news wrap from This Way Out and a decidedly queer take by the Go-Go Boys on a favorite Christmas carol. Queer Voices starts now. I'm Andrew Edmondson and you are listening to Queer Voices. The city of Houston declared July 1st, 2020, Barry Mandel Day in Houston. The honor was bestowed in recognition of Barry Mandel's 10 years as president and park director of Discovery Green, the 12-acre jewel of a park in downtown Houston. Under Barry's leadership, the park was named one of America's 13 Great Places by the American Planning Association in 2019. Barry has been a major player on Houston civic scene for three decades. During the 1990s, he served as executive director of the Houston Theater District Association and later the Downtown Houston Alliance. Mandel also served as chief operating officer of Legacy Community Health. He joined Discovery Green in 2010 as president. Barry recently sat for an interview with the Oral History Project, which is chronicling the history of the AIDS crisis in Houston. In the 1980s, Barry was part of the first group of activists to respond to the HIV crisis in Harris County. We are pleased to welcome Barry Mandel back to Queer Voices to talk about his history of activism and service and his vibrant present at Discovery Green. Welcome, Barry. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Tell us about Discovery Green's recent $12 million expansion. How has it transformed the park? When the park opened, we had no idea that it would be as popular as it was. The estimate was that we would be seeing a half a million people a year. And over its first 10 years, we averaged one and a half million people. You know, lots of stuff that was supposed to have lasted longer didn't. It just felt like it needed a refresh, given that the entire east side of downtown had really changed since the park opened. And the park contributed significantly to that revitalization of downtown, didn't it? Well, thank you for mentioning that, Andrew. (laughs) Yeah, within the first eight years of the park, there was $1.25 billion worth of new construction that took place on the blocks directly adjacent to the park. Everything from one park place to the Marriott Marquis to Hess Tower, Partnership Tower, the redo of the George R. Brown Convention Center all happened within the first eight years of the park. So the neighborhood completely changed during that time period. And how has Discovery Green been impacted by the coronavirus pandemic? We were just like everybody else. Once the shutdown started, everything immediately stopped. We had to figure out, okay, what role can and do we play given this new pandemic? We worked closely with the mayor, with the county judge, and with the other park conservancies in the city to make sure that folks had green space, public space that they could go to safely and securely. But we weren't able to offer a lot of the amenities that the park has. 
our restaurants weren't open, our fountains weren't open, our playgrounds not open, the restrooms at the time weren't open, but at least folks had a place that they could get out and walk. They could get out in the flora and the fauna and at least relieve some of the tension of being locked up and the uncertainty of the time. And did you see a consistent visitation for the park or did it sort of ebb and flow or how has it been during the pandemic? Well, initially in the first couple of months, I mean, it was very slim. The vast majority of the people that worked downtown were not working downtown at the time. A lot of the amenities that downtown has to offer, like arts, sports, restaurants, none of that was happening at the time. Discovery Green was a pretty quiet place to be. We opened then House of Cards, which was an art installation we had from Israel. And we figured it was the kind of thing that you could do. We could socially distance folks. We actually started by having people make reservations. And ultimately, we realized, okay, the public was pretty good about social distancing and mask wearing. And so we were able to just open it up. But again, it gave folks something to see, something to do in a safe and secure manner. Most recently, our newest art installation is called Monuments by an Australian artist named Craig Walsh. And it really pays homage to local heroes in our community. It is a projection of the person's face up on the tree canopy. And Craig is pretty adamant about what he wants to highlight through his installation are the unsung heroes. So we tell us who are some of the unsung heroes you all are highlighting. Well, you have everything from Shireen Herman, who is an HISD advocate for the immigrant community. You know, at just one high school in HISD, they speak 90 different languages. So you can imagine as immigrants coming into a new country, into a new community, into a whole new school system, how and what they need to, to help them get acclimated. And Shireen is that point person, and she has been that point person over a course of 30 years of a career for hundreds and hundreds of immigrants in the community. There's a woman who's a pediatric hospice nurse. There is Joy Sewing, who is a columnist and author and puts together these Days of Joy, which are ways that she can bring the holidays to those folks who don't have the means right now to do that. I mean, so it's a whole array of different folks that are highlighted. Peter Hoetze, that most of us know now from the COVID updates that we get from him from Baylor. He's one of them. But it's a whole array of folks, and the vast majority of them are highlighted for the work they have done and they probably will continue to do before and after this pandemic. So it's a free installation, and you can go and sort of take part and experience it with social distancing, correct? Exactly. Exactly. So they're spread. They're projected on the tree canopy throughout the park. Again, it's social distance, wear a mask is what we're asking folks. And then you also have the ability to read. There are five of them that are projected on the tree canopy and then five others who work the committee wanted to highlight. So you can read about all 10 of them and the work they're doing in this community every day. I think after the miserable year that we've had in 2020, it is such a terrific idea to recognize and to celebrate our heroes. Do the video installations or projections work during the day, or if people want to come, should they wait till the nighttime when it's a little darker? It's open between 6 and 10, and it is both really kind of amazing, a little creepy, um, I have to be honest with you, in that there is this huge face projected in a tree canopy, and the way Craig does it is very slowly he will tell them during the filming of the video, now move your eyes slowly to the right. Move your eyes slowly to the left. Smile. Don't smile. Close your eyes. 
And so you're watching this larger than life projection over you. It's really amazing. And it's a little creepy too, all at the same time. (laughs) And this is part of an ongoing effort by Discovery Green to showcase public art. I think sometimes people hear Discovery Green and just think it's a park, but you all have a program to bring the art to the people, correct? After our first decade, we sat down and thought, all right, um, what do we focus on the next decade? The park is 12 acres and it's landlocked. And so we knew we weren't going to get any larger. We knew we're not going to take any of the green space to erect some type of a building or something like that. And temporary public art just seemed the way to do it, to continue to innovate and bring things to the park that most Houstonians will never have an opportunity to see. Part of that $12 million master plan that you mentioned earlier is also to fund a five-year public art installation series. Switching gears a little, let's talk about your background. You Mm -hmm. are that rare breed, a native Houstonian. Tell us a little bit about your life and your experience coming out as a gay man. I am a fourth-generation Houstonian, and my great-grandmother built and lived in a house on Lubbock Street near the police station that happened to have been on a home tour a couple of years ago, and they still had the deed, her deed, that she had signed when she bought that house, which is kind of amazing. We have long, long roots in this community. I grew up going to a private school for elementary, public school for junior high and high school, and then took off and I went to Boston for college. And it was during that time that a whole transition had happened here in the city while I was gone, especially with the art scene. I had a whole personal transition going on during that time, too. When I ended up coming home, realizing that, okay, if I'm going to make my home, I need to be honest and out with who I am. And this was the very early 80s. And as I was up east, we were just starting to hear talk of this gay cancer that was that was making the news. It was kind of in that that I moved back home where it was a complete denial that any of that was going on. And of so course, that gay cancer to... was AIDS, right? Exactly, which, which later we would know. It then went from, to, from like KS AIDS, then to HIV AIDS. But it was all during this period we're kind of learning more and more about this disease that, it, that was affecting my community. I really thought, okay, I can't sit by while this is happening. First had to deal with coming out to my parents and my family, which I did, and then thought, okay, I've got to get involved in the community and figure out where and how I can make an impact. Got involved over at what was then the Montrose Counseling Center and would volunteer there. And I thought once once a week, and then I thought, okay, I've got to do more. And then got involved in what was then the KS AIDS Foundation. For us, it was, all right, we need to pay somebody's electric bill. Who can grab a coffee can and run over to Mary's and pass the can around to see how much we can get? That was considered a fundraiser at the time. And we did that for years. And that was happening because there was so little government support coming to help people living with HIV that the gay community had to turn within for its own resources, correct? There was no government support. We could not get the president at the time to even say the word. I mean, there was a complete denial. And so we thought, all right, now it's us. Now it's us. We had to figure out how to do the best we can, taking care of each other, forming organizations that were better equipped to take care of more and more of us, and then supporting those as best we can and and making it happen. And at that point, you were in your early to mid-20s? I was. Yep, I was. Early to mid-20s. And can you tell us about a young man you met and the 
future of that relationship? I was shopping one day and the guy helps me at the store. We get into a conversation and we just hit it off. And I was like, wow, he's he's really, really very different. And I mean, he was handsome and he's well-dressed and well-spoken. And I thought, well, that, that was nice. Maybe I'll see him. I was buying a suit actually. And I thought, maybe I'll see him when I pick the suit up. And that night I ended up going out to Rich's and I'm standing there and someone taps me on my shoulder and I turn around and it was him. And then we proceeded to spend the next three and a half years together. And it was on probably our second date that he said to me, I'm HIV positive. And I'm like, how do you know that? He said, because I got tested. I said, why would you do that? Because at the time, everyone, including physicians, were telling you don't get tested. There was no treatment that was available. People were getting fired. People were losing their insurance. I mean, it was this mass ferreting out of people that were HIV positive or had AIDS all throughout the community. And so when he tells me that he was positive, I was like, how in the world would you know that? The fact that he had gotten tested amazed me even more. And his response to me was, I felt something was going on in my body. And I feel like the more I know, the more I can do something about it. And that seemed to be such an empowering statement to hear, especially during that time, that I was even more attracted to him at the time. During the course of our relationship, they discover AZT. They don't, unfortunately, discover the right formulary for giving AZT because it was so new. They just, just were like, get it out. And most were overprescribing the medication. And you were supposed to take two pills every four hours. So the big thing then were pill boxes. And everybody had a pill box on it with an alarm. And you'd go to a party and you'd hear randomly these alarms go off because it was time for people to take their AZT. And ultimately, it was determined that the amount of ACT Tom was taking gave him lymphoma. And that ultimately was what he died from. And just to put this in context, you're a young man in your 20s and all around you, the people in your 20s and older people in their 30s and 40s are dying of this mysterious illness and the government doesn't seem to care. Nothing. You hear nothing from them. And all I can compare it to is I've done a lot of work at the Holocaust Museum. And so I've gotten fortunate to hear from a lot of survivors and their stories. There was an element of that that kind of reflected back to the Holocaust. All of a sudden, people would be around you. You'd see them at parties. You'd see them out at bars. And next thing you know, they were gone. And it's like, where'd they go? What happened? And you never really got the full story on or about anyone. There was a weekly magazine called This Week in Texas, and every week you waited for it and you picked it up. And the first thing you did was you turned to the back of it because they listed all of the obituaries in there. And there were weeks when it was pages and pages of obituaries. So you actually did something very creative and very empowering. You got involved with the NAMES Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. Can you talk about what the quilt was, how you got involved, and a display of the quilt that you helped organize at the Jewish Community Center in the 1980s? Jackson Hicks and I had gotten to be really close friends. And Jackson was, uh, you know, his catering business was just doing gangbusters. And he was really on the forefront of supporting people of candidates, you know, political candidates that, that supported the gay community of different causes. He was constantly donating his services to. And he kind of saw that I was looking for a home as to where to make, you know, an impact and where I could really get involved. And he decided that we were going to start a chapter of the Names Project here in Houston. 
And it really was through the efforts of Pete Martinez and Michael Bongiorni that this group came together and started a chapter to support people in the community that wanted to make quilt panels to remember those that they had lost. And it was during that time that I started to lose a number of friends that I had grown up with, friends in the Jewish community, and their parents were not willing to acknowledge that they had died from AIDS. And I thought, okay, something has got to happen that we can stop this stigma about it in this community for parents who all they want to do is, you know, mourn their child. And found out that there was an AIDS quilt chapter in Israel. And I thought, that's what I've got to do. I've got to bring panels from Israel of Jewish kids into the heart of the Jewish community, which at the time was the Jewish Community Center. And I'm going to pair it with a remembrance and education element so that we leave smarter after having experienced this than we were before it got here. And a guy named Danny Kent was the chapter director in Israel. And I talked to him and he said he would fly here and bring a number of panels here. And it was the year the Republican convention was here in Houston. And there was a woman named Mary Fisher, who was a Jewish philanthropist from Detroit, a Republican, who spoke that year at the convention. And it was a major, major thing that somebody had gotten up on the floor of a political convention and with the guts to say, I have AIDS. And Mary did it. And I got in touch with her through my friend, Stephen Bradley, and she came in and she was the keynote speaker at the opening ceremonies. It was on a Sunday at the Jewish Community Center. And I had gotten a couple named Stephen and Ann Kaufman who were very involved and well-recognized within the Jewish community who agreed to chair the event with me. And that was what we did. And we did a week-long worth of, of showings of the quilt. We did a number of different school trips and high school projects around it during the course of that week. And then the final Sunday, we did a ceremony like they do at most quilts when they used to when they would close the installation where people in the community could come and present panels, uh, new panels that would then join and be added to the AIDS Memorial Quilt. And I was able to convince the Orthodox rabbi and cantor to lead that ceremony. And I guess to translate, to have a highly esteemed figure in the community step forward and embrace an event that focuses on people who've been lost to AIDS probably moved a lot of hearts and minds in the Houston Jewish community. I have to believe it did. But there were a number of parents of my friend, my, my friend's parents, who were finally able to come share their grief and in full transparency by presenting the panels of their sons and daughters. That's incredible, especially in those times when there was such fear and loathing and mm. ignorance around HIV. Yep, yep. So you had talked initially about the first response of the gay community when people were desperate for funds to help them not be kicked out of their apartment or not to have their electricity turned off was to go to bars and to pass the hat and to ask people who are out socializing to be generous. You participated in sort of an evolution of fundraising that became more sophisticated over time. Can you talk about that evolution into events and community events that became traditions and how much money they raised? Well, the, 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 the turning point was really thanks to Carolyn Farb. She decided she had had enough, too, and decided to be the chair of an event that was going to honor Burn Omega. 
aid service organization affiliated with Bering Church, right? Exactly. And she knew exactly what the situation was and the stigma elements and, and all of that. And so what she did was she went to the powerful and mighty in this city. And it didn't matter whether it was political or you were in sports or the arts or, or what it was. But if you had name recognition, and especially if your face could be recognized, she got you to get involved and get involved in, the, in such that you were on the cover of the invitation. So the cover of that invitation was Carolyn surrounded by probably 35 well-known and recognizable Eustonians on risers all around her. That was really the first gala-type fundraiser for any type of an HIV service organization. And, and it was held at the Alley Theater, which is always a prestigious venue, isn't it? Right, right. So, I mean, it was the come. Everything about it was prestigious. <laughs> everything about it. It was black tie. It had these people as co-chairs with her. It was at the Alley. Everything about it completely different than we, than the city had ever seen before in terms of a fundraiser for an HIV service organization. And with that, it was like all of the others then felt like, okay, we have an opportunity now to figure out who is that same type of a person in the community for us. And fundraisers like that used to start to, to happen far more often. And you were very involved in the 1990s with a fundraiser that became very popular in the gay community called Halloween Magic, in which you would write a script. Can you talk a little bit about Halloween Magic and the invaluable hundreds of thousands of dollars that it raised during the early years of the AIDS crisis? It was really Gilbert Perez who came up with this idea, and it came out of the need at that point of HIV service organizations who needed unrestricted money. At that point, there was government funding that started through the Ryan White Cares Act. You could get money if it was you know, to provide medical services or dental services, eyeglasses, pay somebody's life insurance, things like that. But if you needed money to get somebody in a cab to their doctor, you know, all of a sudden those kind of dollars were, were less and less available. And so he wanted to put something together that would raise money in an unrestricted manner for different HIV service organizations. And he came up with this idea of a show, and it was called Halloween Magic. And it developed over a number of years. Ultimately, we would start writing the show Memorial Day weekend, write all through the summer, and then turn the script over to the director and cast Labor Day. They would practice and rehearse from Labor Day all the way through the beginning of Halloween week when it would go on stage. And he's probably raised over all of the years close to $2 million in Halloween magic that was unrestricted money for HIV service organizations. And those were smaller grassroots organizations who sometimes they lived or died and survived financially based on a $25,000 a year grant from Halloween Magic, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, was, and it was also those that were on the cutting edge of trying to take care of people or trying to take care of situations that we hadn't really experienced before. So all of a sudden you were having kids being born to HIV positive mothers who needed care. Well, we hadn't really experienced that before in the transition of the disease. Halloween Magic was able to respond to help those type of organizations that had not put themselves into a much more formalized organization. That was the first half of an in-depth conversation with Houston activist Barry Mandel. We will have more of that conversation next week when Andrew Edmondson talks with Barry about how he became involved in politics and fundraising and what has kept him going through decades of service to the community. 
Give yourself a gift this year. Come out for Christmas. Out for Christmas. Tell your ma and tell your pa that you're fine. La 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 la. Be good for goodness sake this year. Come out for Christmas. Out for Christmas. Be yourself and demonstrate your ride in sync with heaven and nature. If your good news you need recounting, just go tell it on the mountain. Happy is the gal or guy who says there's no place like home for the holidays. Tell your peers you're queer this year. Come out. Out for Christmas. Out for Christmas. Comfortable and joyous neath the mistletoe. See and kiss Alice, Dan kiss Daryl, looking fabulous in their gay apparel. Coming out for Christmas everywhere they go. With every Christmas card you write, don't hide it, Yule Tide. Show pride at Yule Tide. Deck your drag with boughs of holly. It's goodbye, Dick, and hello, Dolly. And if you're not at all a goy, then Sal or Monica, come out for Hanukkah. Don your leather and/or angora, then flame by flame light your menorah. Unto us a son is given. Don't be damned for how you're living. A child is born. Sing hallelujah and say I'm gay. So what's it to ya? Stockings full of coal for folks who. Mock our mingle, dear Chris Kringle. Here's our hopeful letter to you. Then don't let their fear of same-sex sex mess up our revelry this Xmas. Signed, very merry gentle women and men. Dear merchant, don't let your idea of sin come between you and our very large disposable income. When out come the good little girls and boys who prefer to play with playmates that have similar toys. Out for Christmas, coming out for Christmas. Again. That was the Go Go Boys from their album Homo for the Holidays, released in 2001 on the Ring Records label. From all of the crew at Queer Voices, here's hoping you can forget 2020. Low key f- 2020. Okay, let's try that again. New Year's greetings, take two. From all of us at Queer Voices, here's wishing you a happy and safe new year. And 2020 and the horse it rode in on. Isn't that special? No, no, no. New Year's greetings take three. From all of us at Queer Voices, Here's wishing you and your loved ones a safe and happy 2021. This is Queer Voices. I'm Andrew Edmondson, and you are listening to Queer Voices. Asia Foster, a 22-year-old Houston transgender woman, was found dead on a street in southwest Houston on November 20th. She had suffered multiple gunshot wounds. She became the 38th transgender person known to have died by violence in the United States this year. Asia Foster was a former client of Montrose Grace Place, a local LGBTQ-affirming drop-in shelter for houseless youth. In a tribute to her on the group's Facebook page, they observed, Asia was outgoing, funny, and she could put together a read that left everyone around her scrambling to pick up their jaws. Foster often volunteered to do activist work by going out and finding homeless youth who needed HIV and STD testing. She also advocated for trans women of color who so often become victims of violence. 
2020 has already seen at least 41 transgender or gender nonconforming people fatally shot or killed by other violent means, according to the Human Rights Campaign. The majority of those killed were Black and Latinx transgender women. The toll of deadly anti-trans violence across America has become so stark that the American Medical Association has officially declared it an epidemic. Since 2015, there have been at least 15 murders of transgender Texans, with half of those occurring in Dallas, according to the Dallas Morning News. African-American trans women are disproportionately represented among the victims. To discuss this epidemic of violence against transgender women of color, we are pleased to welcome back to Queer Voices, Diamond Stiles. She is the executive director of the organization Black Transgender Women, Inc. Diamond, welcome back to Queer Voices. Thank you for having me. Can you talk about the increase in violence against Black trans women and other transgender women of color? What do you think is causing the surge in violence? First of all, if there's an issue going on um, nationally, when we think about like the COVID and all the issues and anxiety and stress that comes with that, what happens is with our situation, it, our situation as trans folks, transness, transphobia exacerbates those situations. So that's why we have one of the highest cases. So when we think about even in other situations, like when we think about domestic violence, because of COVID, domestic violence cases has risen. And so things like that, just whatever already is a problem in society, something like COVID is going to exacerbate it and make it even worse when it comes to disparities or any type of disparities, homelessness, look at how many people are becoming homeless and getting evicted. And any kind of situation that happened naturally is going to make people who are further on the margins, people who are on the fringes of society in a more dire situation. So that's just what's happened. That's just natural when it comes to problems in society. Can you talk about the way Houston has been impacted by this lethal wave of violence against transgender women? Texas as a whole has been an epicenter of trans violence. One of the reasons Dallas being more so than Houston, but definitely we've had two girls in a year be found dead. For me, I think one of the reasons is because we're in the South, a lot of the resources that people on like the Northeast or the West Coast, they have those kind of resources and infrastructure when it comes to shelter, when it comes to anti-violence programming, they have those kind of resources. In the South, we don't get as many resources because of the political state of most of the states in our region. In Texas in particular, we just don't have the resources. I'm literally, that's why it took me three minutes to get on this call. I'm literally on the call with a girl who is homeless, who doesn't have anywhere to go. And I literally have no resources for her to go that are trans affirming. She either would have to detransition which is a whole nother bag of worms, or she has to sleep in her car, sleep on somebody's couch. And so this is this is what I mean. There are there's just not enough resources or infrastructures of survival mechanisms for us to actually utilize when we are in situations. So it puts us in a more vulnerable state because we can't actually, you know, we, we have to do sex work to survive. We have to be in stay in violent situations just to have a place, just to have a, a couch to sleep on deal with pimps, deal with abusive family members, abusive uh, lovers. We, we have to deal with these things because we don't have any other options to get on our feet. 
In your work as executive director of Black Trans Women, Inc., have you been receiving a lot more calls from transgender people needing the type of assistance that you're talking about? Have those calls increased? Absolutely. We actually put out an assessment. So our how, what our programming does is we focus on housing, we focus on um, food, um, we focus on, an, on anti-violence. And so once COVID hit, we put out a, a needs assessment and we got so much feedback and we've been getting so much feedback. And basically all the problems that we were having before before COVID, they just have gotten worse. And so we have, we opened up a food pantry to be able to ship out food boxes for people all over the country, not just in Texas, because we're a national organization. We kind of try to help whatever state is in need. That's just what has happened. We have so many people contacting us about housing, but we don't have places to, to send them. We have to literally have to send them to other states sometimes just because if, if there's no beds available in Texas, we have to send them to places like the House of Tulip in New Orleans, to facilities, House of Ruby in D.C., like literally have to fund flying them to places that have beds for them to sleep. And this is away from their family. You know, because sometimes you have family that you can't stay with them, but you have a relationship with them. And meaning you can't stay with them because they don't accept your gender identity. and they Exactly. Continue. They don't accept your identity. But this is only people that you know. And so you have an emotional attachment to them. So just leaving up, just up and leaving the city that you're from, that you lived in, that's a hard option to make. Because think about if you're homeless and even some of your friends and your the family that you can't stay with because they may not have room, but they accept you. Just leaving that kind of even no matter, even though it's kind of dire in a small, that small support system can be devastating for somebody. So we literally have had to buy tickets for people to go. The only bed we have is in Maryland. That's open that you can say that's going to be comfortable, that that's going to be comfortable for you. So we've had so many situations like that. We've had. And a quick question, are there not enough housing options for trans people because some shelters are discriminatory against trans people? Or yes. is it more that the COVID epidemic has just increased the problem of homelessness so much that there are even fewer beds? Both of those situations are true. So there, if you go to a women's shelter, a cisgender women's shelter, they don't want you there because you are, we're not protected in Texas in regards to public accommodations. We're not protected in regards to where they can't turn us away. They literally can turn us away. And so they do that. If and you you've go had to clients a, tell you that, that they've been turned away by uh, homeless facilities in Texas? That, and I have been turned away. Just, they're telling me that, like, I used to be homeless myself. So I've actually been in the situation. That's why I do the work that I do. I've experienced this. And so not only have it, I've experienced it myself, but literally clients are telling us that people are turning them away. If we lived in California who have policy and protections for trans people, there could be some legal recourse that you can take. But in Texas, we don't have those legal, we don't have those protections. That's just not how we're structured in regards to policy protection. And then if you go to the men's shelter, say that you are willing to even do that. They don't want to take you. because Meaning you as a alive. transgender woman, you're willing to go transition back to being a man because you're so desperate to find exactly. shelter. Most trans women are not willing to do that, but say that they are. They have to detransition so much that it and, and it makes them a liability for the people. I know when I was willing to do it, to, they told me I had to take my breast off, but I couldn't take my breast off. <laughs> they, they can't come off because they're natural. 
And then some girls who can take them off say that they haven't been further in their transition. It still makes them a liability for the home because if you get assaulted or you get raped, that makes them vulnerable. So they don't really want to take you in. And they ask you questions. I know me, they ask me questions like, can you take your wig off? Can you stop taking hormones? Can you do all these things? Because I don't know if I can help you. Or can you sign this waiver that takes responsibility from us if we if you do get attacked? And then that's a whole nother can of worms. It's so many things that um, so many intersections of what happens in our situation, even if we are trying to be accommodating just out of desperation that people just don't want us to stay. And when you were searching for a home, were you able to find it? And how did it work out? In my situation? Yes. My personal situation? No, I had to sleep on somebody's couch. And how long were you forced to do that? I was forced to do that for a month. I had to, I slept on a girl that I didn't know. I met her on, in a chat room and I told her my situation and she, she's a trans woman. And she was like, well, you can sleep on my couch. And I was there. This is back in, this was a while ago, 07. And I slept from November 15th to December 16th. I was on the track. I was doing sex work and I was able to save enough money to put a deposit on an apartment. And that's what I did. And is it a common experience for transgender people that sometimes for a month or six weeks, you have to live on a kind person's couch who's willing to take you in? Absolutely. But if you have that option, some people don't even have that option. And for people who don't understand, can you talk about why a trans person would need to do sex work? It's two things. Getting a job. Jobs can be scarce, regardless if you are trans or not. Okay. Jobs can be scarce, period. Add the fact that you're trans. If you go in for the interview and they can tell you're trans, they may not hire you because of that. They don't want to take on that responsibility or take on those kind of problems or whatever. They, that doesn't represent their company. There's so many reasons why they could, they, that, could, that could be. And it's legal hired. for them, or it was legal for them to discriminate basically and say, well, you're trans and we're not going to hire you. Previously, right? yes. We just had the case in June that gives us some type of protection, but that doesn't, <laughs> the, the Supreme Court creating the protection, that doesn't always translate to actions and behaviors changing. Because <laughs> Texas is still an at will state. People could still, you know, in regards to what they do and how they maneuver around that policy, you know, still be behaving in a wrong way. Can you tell us who Malaysia Booker was and what was significant about her life? Malaysia Booker was a Dallas trans woman who was viciously attacked by multiple men in a viral video because of a fender bender in April of 2018. A month later, after it went viral, there was a press conference. People stepped up to help her, put her in a hotel. A month later, she was found dead. Me, Monica Roberts, Dee Dee Waters went up to the funeral and talked to her friends and talked to her family just to see like what could have been done. And we, what we find out is they too didn't have the structure to keep her safe. So in that month, even though they put her in the hotel, she wasn't being taken care of while she was in the hotel. So people were able to find her and she was murdered, basically. And was that people who wanted to do her ill will, tracked her down and... From what I'm to understand from the police, yes. And for me, as a gay cisgender man, it was a real eye-opening experience to see that video and to realize this is the daily reality that trans people live under. 
And I guess a question for you, do you feel like you or other trans people live under that fear of possibly being violently attacked or murdered in the way that Malaysia Booker was? I think some trans people more than others. It is all about how you present to the world in regards to visually. There is a thing that in our community we call passing. So passing is when people look at you, can they tell that you're trans or do they think that you're cisgendered? If people can tell that you're trans, then that's when the the incidents of violence occur more often. So when I, if you can tell that I'm trans and I get on the bus, there could be some on the bus that just wants to tease me, be violent because they see that I'm trans. When I was younger, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little bit more advanced. But when I was younger, I've been in situations like that where I got on the bus and my transness was obvious. And a guy got violent just because I got on the bus, not because I argued with him, not because I said anything, because I sat down in a seat in front of him on the bus. And he was like, don't sit your F-A-G-G-E-T, but next to me, I'm not into that. And just turned into a whole violent situation just because I sat in a seat on a public transportation. And I hear about situations like this on the train, from all over the country, on the train, on the bus, walking down the street, being at a restaurant, whatever. The incidence of violence can happen just because of transphobia. I don't need to do anything. I can just be in the space. If you can tell that I'm trans, it can lead to violence. Are those things changing? A little bit. But, you know, with the visibility that we have now, it's a little bit better, but not really. It depends on where you are living. It depends on how you look. It depends on so many things. So many things. But yes, now for myself, because I've gotten to a certain level when I walk the street, most people just think I'm some auntie black woman. <laughs> so I don't really have a lot of issues. But when I was back in my youth, when I was when people could tell right off the bat, yes, when you can tell somebody's trans, that just takes the incidence of violence up way further. That was the first half of an in-depth conversation with transgender activist Diamond Styles. We will have more of that conversation next week when Andrew Edmondson talks with Diamond about what needs to be done to protect trans people from violence. This is a Queer Voices audio snapshot. In this episode from December 2020, Houston ballet soloist Harper Waters talks about growing up as a gay kid who needed to do ballet and wanted to find a community where he fit in. I'm originally from Dover, New Hampshire. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I was adopted at two weeks. Both my parents are former college English professors. I got into dance actually because I was a rambunctious kid who had lots of energy and I value and know that my parents had an understanding of the arts. They knew what benefits that had as a child and I think it was very clear that I wasn't going to be tackling boys in football and that I wasn't going to be doing the traditional route of sports and the dance studio had the performance element that I think I was showing as a child when I would do my one-man performances of dance things in, in the living room and I forced my dad to make me a balance beam so I could be like Dominique Dawes after seeing her in the Olympics. The dance studio was somewhere I could get the energy out. Quickly I realized the dance studio was less 
Oh, not, I shouldn't say less, but it was just as much about the dancing as it was the community. It was where I could turn the volume up on Harper. I could be myself to my fullest. I feel like outside of the studio, I was at like a three. And in the studio, I was like an 11. <laughs> it was like a search for community and, and my friends. And that's where I could be myself. And I just happened to have rhythm. I just happened to get my leg up. I was coordinated. So it was riding this parallel wave of I can do dance, but I also wanted to be around the people I was dancing with. Freshman year of high school, I really struggled with friends and, you know, outside of the dance studio. That was Houston Ballet soloist Harper Waters. For more biographical information and links to videos of some of his work, go to theharperwaters.com. This has been a Queer Voices audio snapshot. Martha, what that feller on the wireless just say? Something about them interwebs? You don't have to ask Martha. We've got all the names, dates, and webpage links for people, events, and anything else mentioned in the show right on our own website. It's queervoices.org. We even link to past shows and other tidbits of information. So check it out. Queervoices.org. Besides, Martha is a cat. She doesn't know anything about websites. This is Queer Voices. I'm Marcos Najera. And I'm Paula Thomas. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending December 19th, 2020. A process that began in Switzerland in 2013 has culminated with parliamentary passage of a bill to open civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples. Versions of a marriage equality bill, first introduced by the Green Party, have been debated off and on these seven years. The December 18th vote was not even close, 136 to 48 in the lower National Council and 24 to 11 in the upper Council of States. Civil partnerships for same-gender couples were created in 2007, but the resulting rights fell far short of civil marriage. The new measure also allows lesbians to access fertility treatment. The Christian far-right Federal Democratic Union Party has vowed to sponsor a referendum to overturn the newly minted equality. However, public opinion polls have consistently shown overwhelming support for marriage equality. When the final dust settles, Switzerland will become the 30th country on the planet with marriage equality. Andorra, Italy, Liechtenstein, Monaco, San Marino, and Vatican City will be the only jurisdictions in Western Europe that do not allow its gay and lesbian citizens to legally marry. The Swiss Parliament made it a double victory for the queer community. Hours later, they passed a bill to allow trans and intersex people to change their gender marker on official documents with a simple declaration at a government office rather than having to get a court order. Romania's Constitutional Court overturned a recently enacted law banning gender identity studies on December 16th. This according to a Reuters report. The education law amendment had passed without debate earlier this year. Human rights groups and educational institutions had voiced strong opposition, charging that it infringed on basic rights and encouraged discrimination. 
Centrist President Klaus Johannes resisted escalating homophobia in neighboring Hungary and Poland to challenge the measure in the high court. Socially conservative Romania only decriminalized same-gender sex in 2001. It's among the dwindling number of EU member states that still refuses to legally recognize same-gender couples. Cuba is delaying marriage equality. It was part of a new family code that was set for debate in the National Assembly in March 2021, but the government announced an indefinite delay this week. According to local reports, authorities claimed that renowned specialists needed time for more study due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Marriage equality was part of the first draft of a new constitution for the island nation that was unanimously approved by lawmakers in July 2018. It was deleted after strong opposition during a public consultation period. Voters approved the new constitution without marriage equality in a referendum soon thereafter. Leaders in the National Assembly then decided that the measure should be dealt with in the new family code. But, according to one English translation of a report in PeriodicoCubano.com, Cuban Justice Minister Oscar Silvera Martinez explained that more time is required to deepen in concepts and legal institutions that allow us to provide an essential code in the current context and perspective of Cuban society. Britain's Health and Social Care Secretary Matt Hancock announced in a press release this week that men who have had one sexual partner and who have been with their sexual partner for more than three months will be eligible to donate blood regardless of the gender of their partner or the type of sex they have. Under the previous policy, gay and bisexual men were only allowed to be blood donors if they had not had sex with another man in the past three months. Hancock said the policy change recognizes individuals for the actions they take rather than their sexual orientation. The new guidelines will take effect in mid-2021. Most equality activists applaud the change. Others complain that a significant number of potential gay and bisexual blood donors still will not qualify under the new policy. Until 2011, all gay and bisexual men were banned from donating blood in the UK. Then they were required to be celibate for the previous 12 months. The time period was changed to three months in 2017. The latest move in Britain has prompted activists in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. to push for similar relaxation of policies that now require gay and bi-male blood donors to have been celibate for at least the previous three months. The queer advocacy group ILGA World updated its state-sponsored homophobia report this week. It cited progress in times of uncertainty. But research coordinator Lucas Ramon Mendoz said that as of December 2020, 69 U.N. member states continue to criminalize same-sex consensual activity. At least 34 of those countries actively prosecute people for it. Offenders can be executed in Brunei, Iran, Mauritania, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. The report concluded that it's not clear whether the death penalty could be imposed in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Qatar, Somalia, and the United Arab Emirates. And at least 51 U.N. member states have legal barriers to the formation or registration of NGOs working on issues related to sexual and gender diversity. However, the report celebrated reductions this year in punishment for consensual gay sex in Sudan and the outright repeal of anti-gay sex laws in Gabon and Bhutan. There were other findings in the report, too. Almost three dozen U.N. member nations now offer some form of legal recognition to same-gender couples. 
81 member states now have laws banning workplace bias based on sexual orientation. At least four countries criminalize conversion therapy, and it's banned in parts of Australia, Canada, Mexico, Spain, and the United States. Despite the challenges ahead, ILGA World Director of Programs Julia Ert concluded that each section of this report contains hope for a better tomorrow. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear another appeal of a queer-positive lower court ruling this week. The Republican-led government of Indiana had asked the high court to review the decision that upheld the right of both members of a married same-gender couple to be listed as parents on the child's birth certificate. The state had only allowed the biological parent to be listed. The appeal was among a number of other cases the court declined to hear without explanation. The high court currently has a conservative 6-3 majority, and at least four of the nine justices must vote to hear a case. Equality activists labeled this as yet another effort to erode the rights given to gay and lesbian couples in the Supreme Court's 2015 marriage equality ruling. Human rights campaign president Afonso David applauded the latest decision that once again affirms that married same-sex couples are entitled to be treated equally under the law. Ohio's prohibition on changing gender markers on its residence birth certificates was struck down by federal judge Michael Watson on December 16th. That potentially allows trans citizens in the Buckeye State to revise their legal documents. It's not clear if officials in Republican-controlled Ohio will appeal. If the ruling stands, Tennessee will be the only state left in the union to deny its transgender residents the opportunity to change the gender markers on their legal documents. Washington, D.C. is now the latest jurisdiction in the world to ban the anti-gay and anti-trans panic defense in violent criminal cases such as murder. Defense attorneys have used it to plea bargain such charges down to manslaughter or even lesser crimes. The measure now goes to Mayor Muriel Bowser for her expected signature. However, it still must pass muster in Congress, which has the final jurisdiction over legislation in the district. And finally, former South Bend, Indiana mayor and Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg will become the first openly queer member of a U.S. presidential cabinet if he wins approval in the Senate. President-elect Joe Biden introduced Mayor Pete as the next Secretary of Transportation on December 15th. Buttigieg is expected to play a key role in Biden's push for bipartisan infrastructure funding. Observers note that the job will also give Buttigieg first-time federal government experience that could bolster another presidential run. Buttigieg mentioned his spouse Chastin more than once during his brief remarks and acknowledged that The eyes of history are on this appointment. This is the first time an American president has ever sent an openly LGBTQ cabinet member to the Senate for for confirmation. I can't help but think of a 17-year-old somewhere who might be watching us right now. Somebody who wonders whether and where they belong in the world, or even in their own family. And I'm thinking about the message that today's announcement is sending to them. So thank you, Mr. President-elect. Thank you for honoring your commitment to diversity with this administration that you're assembling. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending December 19th, 2020. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is recording remotely during the COVID-19 emergency. It's written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you, 
Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Marcos Najera. Stay healthy. And I'm Paula Thomas. Stay safe. Call out the holly. Put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stockings. I may be rushing things, but deck the halls again now. For we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Candles in the window, carols at the spinet. Yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry, but Santa dear, we're in a hurry. So climb down the chimney, turn on the brightest string of lights I've ever seen. Slice up the fruitcake, it's time we hung some tinsel on that evergreen bough. For we need a little music, need a little laughter, need a little singing ringing through the rafter, and we need a little snappy. Happy ever after Need a little Christmas This has been Queer Voices which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage, queervoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lovinka. Andrew Edmondson and Jack Valensky are frequent contributors, and Summer Iman is our webmaster. Music on this podcast is partly sourced from local queer artists and coordinated through Matthew Williams, who also originates the Artist Spotlight series. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt. Glenn Holt